Hi, everybody. I'm online. Patty will be around here. I think we're cooking all of the... There was a login issue at Facebook. They they made us... They made me read login or something weird today. So, anyway. There we go. So, this is Patty. You look so pretty today, honey. Look at that. Thank you, honey. You're so sweet. My shirt is kind of bright. It kind of glows. It's just a light blue shirt. It is. It, in person, it's a white shirt. Well, with no, little, it's light blue, right? Well, honey, it's a white shirt with ba with baby blue, tons of little dots. I think it's baby blue dots surrounded by white. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah. yeah Either way. Yeah. Um, we went to the uh, memorial service for Bernie Souter, who was Sandy Richard's dad. Yes. He died just like just that but shy of his 101st birthday he was uh, landed on the beaches at normandy landed on omaha beach received the highest award the french government has to give somebody who isn't french for military yes. valor for what he did that day or the day after yes um, a few years in World ago War we were at saint andrew uh, one evening the uh, french ambassador i believe in yeah. dallas came to St. Andrew and we all met in the parlor and they presented this award yeah. to him. Um, it was a very touching service. It was so touching. The VFW were there and they um, they unfolded the American flag and then refolded the flag while um, Jonathan was playing taps in the background. No, that I don't think that could have been. I think that was there had to be a recording. It sounded oh. too much like a bugle. I love how organs can oh, uh, I'm sorry. sound like other Th there instruments. There was a real person that was playing it in the back because I, I saw really? his family say, he's back there. So, yes. Well, he was the most amazing bugleist I've ever heard because he was perfect. And then at the very end, though, Jonathan did play. Play. He played um, for closing. What did he play? He played Wolhowski's Battle Hymn of the Republic. Oh, and he... he just, he had stuff for hands and feet flying he, everywhere he for that thing. He was amazing. But what, what a tribute Sandy was able to give yes. to her dad. And um, just such a very interesting person. Um, and so few World War II vets are still with us. Yeah, I mean, they're, every ago. year, I'm sure every month, you know, the number just has to keep dwindling down. And, um, yep. But. Yep. It, it, it was truly, uh, it was a small but wonderful, wonderful service. Arthur did an outstanding job. He did an outstanding he job. He really did. So. We gathered today on a day when it seems like war clouds are gathering in Europe. So it does. What, an, what an appropriate thing to be, to be coming to Isaiah and coming to Scripture yes. on, on a day like today. So um, uh, there's... The, the pages of scripture just filled with with a lot of truth about who we are and how God's vision for us is that we're going to beat swords into plowshares, but we tend to, yes. since we still still live in the age of sin and death, do the opposite. We beat the plowshares. We beat the Pruning plowshares into swords. Yes, yeah. So yeah. in any event. So we're glad that you all here. We're we going to be picking it up in Isaiah um, chapter four, and so it'll be a little more 
uplifting, I think, than last week was. Last week was very much it's the kind of stuff I warned about in Isaiah, a long passage about the arrogance of Jerusalem and how everything was messed up. And we'll get some more of that today, but we're going to start getting some, some a few bright lights along the way here. Yes. Yeah. So, anyway. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I saw You're looking at sorry. emails go yes. flying by. I Get thought it was these... somebody from church. No, I get these little notifications yes. in the upper right-hand corner of all the junk emails I get. I guess we all get them. Yes. Right? We all get them. So, in any event, we're not on mute. They have a picture. We're all here. I know they could hear us because we'd hear it now. Yes. Somebody cut yes. Us, so. so, they're all... We're very grateful that y'all are with us yes. today. And, um, you know, we are going to keep right now our world in just in prayer yep. a, a lot's happened in the last hour in our world and we're just you know we're just praying 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 so i will open us up with prayer okay. today okay and um we'll take it from there let's pray gracious lord we are grateful to be gathered in on a, on, on a day when it it really does seem like things that are unimaginable really are about to happen um we pray your Blessings on this world, on our time together. Uh, pull us into these this ancient scroll from n nearly three thousand years ago, that brings so much truth to us about who you are, who we are, the nature of humankind, and um, even glimpses of the solution to these problems, which just seem to beset us, the problems with, if you look at the whole expanse of humanity, problems we create for ourselves. But in any event, Lord, just bless our time together. May your spirit fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm going to go around the other side. Okay. And so... Um, Rich Morgan, if you're online, I hope... You're happy that we're, I hope you're here. I hope you're happy yes. with how things are going because you started all this. So <laughs> people have asked me, well, Scott, what made you do this after all? saying no for so long? I said, talk to Rich. Talk yes. to Rich. And I'm so grateful, Rich, <laughs> truly. All right. So here is where we are. We are at the, we're going to pick up right at chapter four, verse two. But let me provide just a little bit of introduction just to remind us. Chapter 1 is one of the chapters about what has gone wrong, the problem, how the people are running away from God rather than toward God, how they are unjust, they are not living according to the law of Moses, they aren't looking after the orphans and the widows, um, they aren't pursuing justice. And then in chapter 2, you get this glimpse of the world put right. And the famous phrase, beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and everybody sitting in peace under their fig trees that are just, they're just so powerful um, on a day like today. Um, you get that right at the beginning of chapter two. And I think it's the perfect place for that vision to be in the scroll because the scroll, the, the writing of Isaiah can get pretty heavy at times. Because there is a lot of sin and death and injustice in this world. And as Isaiah calls the people to account for it, having this vision of a world put right, 
of a world put right is, is just something that I at least have to keep running to. And so we will look for those visions all the way through because they point us toward Jesus. Just as the vision 2, um, uh, the chapter 2 vision in Isaiah really points us ahead to um, to Revelation 21 and 22 that Arthur is so, so fond of talking about lately. So then in chapter 3, which is where we spent a lot of time last week, finishing up chapter 2, chapter 3, the first verse of chapter 4, it's all about the arrogance of Jerusalem, all about the arrogance of Judah, the arrogance of this world, because in that they stand in for us all, and, and, and the consequences that were going to come from their abandonment of God. And I explained last week that... Um, the best way to read all of that is not as if God is waiting to simply smite people like we were flies and God holds this giant fly swatter. He's not waiting to smite people. It is about the turning on our heads our own sins, to quote Ezekiel. It's about the consequences of our abandonment of God, our unwilling to pursue justice. And um, I I was just reading today, well, yesterday, day before, an article by Arthur Brooks in The Atlantic about happiness and satisfaction and how it, they just, they just elude, they just elude people. And then I open up something and it says they're afraid Ted Turner, who's got a kajillion bucks, Right, they're worried about him committing suicide or something, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know. And so Arthur Brooks, um, who I think is a Christian, perhaps, but but writes in this in a non-specifically Christian context, said, "Friends, family, meaningful work, and faith; those are the keys to pursuing a life that people will find continually satisfying and joy-filled." So, and that is what we were created for. And when we don't, then the consequences that we reap from that are the kind of consequences we read about in chapter 3. And they can be lived out on a very micro level in terms of the wreckage I make of my own life, or they can be lived out on a societal level. And the consequences for an entire people um, when they pursue when they refuse to pursue justice and the doing of right and mercy and kindness. So, we are at chapter 4, verse 1, verse 2, because chapter 4, verse 1 should be part of chapter 3. So, the chapter break should be between verse 1 and verse 2 of, of chapter 4. And when we come to chapter 4, verse 2, we are thrust into a brief bit about the branch of the Lord, the branch of Yahweh. And it is a paragraph that's gotten lots of discussion over the years. For most of Christian history, people saw in it something messianic, something of the Messiah, because later on um, there will be the root of Jesse, right? The In Hebrew, the word for branch is very similar to the word in uh, Hebrew again for Nazareth. 
And so people saw that this branch we're going to read about soon would be this this glimpse, right? That's what it is. It's a glimpse. It's a it, it it's it's a little signpost. It's just a little. It's a roadside marker telling you you're heading in the right direction, giving you a hint of what is to come, and and that is certainly how I see it. I think that is exactly what's going on, um, because one piece of imagery around what's happening to the people of God is that because of their abandonment of God, they're going to be reduced to a stump. <laughs> I've been one time in Ohio. I tried to dig out a stump, chop it up with an axe, and take it out. I was a very young man. I was a very foolish man. That is not work for mortals, let me tell you. I did not get that job done. <laughs> and, and so stumps are a challenge, but that's just what they are. They're just stumps. But sometimes, even out of stumps that seem to be dead, 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 there emerges a branch that is alive and fruitful, you see, and will be the branch upon which the future will be built. That's, I think, the idea. So let's just take a look at it. Anything over there, Patty, as I take a swallow of my coffee? Nope. Rich did say thanks for giving in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am glad we did. Okay. So we're in Isaiah 4. Let me just hold up four fingers instead of ten. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Right? So we just the mindset to have is all of this, the arrogance of Jerusalem and all the terrible consequences of it. But in that day, you see, in that day, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. It's, it, it is this remnant theology. That's a really good phrase to know. Remnant. A remnant is, you know, there are remnants of fabric, remnants of lots of things. I've got remnants of all kinds of junk around here. Right, Patty? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, the remnant theology is simple. It is simply the idea that as the world is falling in on the people of God variously in, in different places, there will always be a faithful remnant. God will preserve a remnant. Um, you see it even in the book of Revelation. A faithful remnant. Might just be a few might even be just one, if you want to think of Jesus in this way, right? But some. And so now this branch, just a branch, not the whole tree, just a branch. The branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. The fruit of the land, what's glorious about the land, will not be what's planted in it, but these survivors who will carry on. Verse 3, those who are left in Zion, another name for Jerusalem, who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, which means set apart for God's purposes. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Now, that the meaning of that's a little bit unclear. It could be in, in a sort of a census way because 
they actually did do a census from time to time in this in the ancient world different um, nations did different cultures did but it might also be tied in a bit to this idea of a book a book of names a book of uh, a book of names of the faithful a book of names where where the the faithful are recorded that you encounter a few places but most dramatically in the book of revelation um and again it is this idea that that through everything god preserves god preserves god pushes forward god is going to carry god's purposes through to their ordained conclusion Verse 4, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. There is much in this world that needs to be judged. That must be. Must be. You can't hold on to a sense of right and wrong and think that that you can banish the idea of judgment because there is simply so much wrong. It just beats deep within our, deep within our souls, deep, you know, there was a great philosopher, most of whose philosophy I don't understand, named Immanuel Kant, but one of his deals was, look, there just has to be a great judge. It just has to be. And our hearts tell us that there must be. People must, must stand to account for their lives, for their choices. And, and Christianity doesn't disagree with that. You know, you look at the end of the book of Revelation, there is judgment. There is a book of merit. In the book of merit, the names are read out. And and people's lives are examined and read out. But by God's grace, it's not the book of names that determines who will live in eternity with God. That is in a book powered by God's grace and mercy, the book of life. You see, those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, who have entrusted themselves to God. So... Um, but yes, yes, there's, there's, you know, the, what is, certainly if you ask Jews of 722 B.C. or of 600 B.C. when the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians are falling in on them, why is this happening? They would say it is God's judgment, which is, which is lived out in the consequences of what they had done themselves, like Ezekiel. Their sins are turned back on their own heads, Ezekiel writes. God says, their sins are turned back upon their own heads. It, it is, um, what's the phrase? They are, they, are, they are reaping the whirlwind. Reaping the whirlwind. Verse 5, Then Yahweh will create over all of Mount Zion, and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. Now, what is that a reference to? What does that sound like? 
to me, you. it sounds like the Exodus. It sure does. It sounds exactly like what happens about Sinai. Um, right? So there's a when when they cross the Red Sea, there's a pillar of fire by night, uh, a cloud by day that that leads them to Mount Sinai. And when they arrive at Mount Sinai, over the top of the mountain is this theophany, it's called. It's a manifestation of God's presence. The clouds and the thunder and the lightning, this big canopy. And of course, what what does a canopy provide to people who are caught out in the rain? <laughs> it says they're shelter. Shelter, know. exactly. Yeah. Protection, shelter. So so that's a piece of this. This, this, is, this is clearly drawing us to God, to God's protection, to God's almightiness. The Lord will create over all of Mount Zion. That's an important hilltop in Jerusalem. And it means over over this over God's city, if you want to think about it that way. Like Mount Sinai was God's mountain, so Jerusalem, Mount Zion is 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 God's city. Then Yahweh will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day, a cloud of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be like a canopy. The glory of God is this, this enabling of everybody to see that God is God. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, which we have, Patty and I and many, some of you have experienced in Israel. Even in the fall, it, it can hot. be hot and strong sun. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. So what's, what's the vision of that in this um, chapter, chapter 4 right here? That there is coming this, this salvation, this rescue, and it will be the presence of God sheltering and saving and and it's just i think it's it's poetic it's 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 beautiful it would be it would be a vision of hope for those whose world is falling in on them right yes so, anything over there, Patty? Um, no thoughts? comments. No, no comments yet. Okay. So now, friends, we're gonna we shift a little bit. We're gonna go to Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah five is a really important chapter, and I'm gonna we're gonna connect it up with two first two New Testament places where it figures in mightily. But just so that you're very excited about doing this okay i brought i brought a prop for for show and tell today so here's my prop chapter five <laughs> chapter five isaiah right here chapter five isaiah is all about a vineyard what grows in a vineyard grapes do you think they made grape jelly out of grapes they did not 
They made wine out of grapes. Of course they did. Throughout the Old Testament, wine is a blessing for the people. And vineyards vineyards matter. When Patty and I have been to Israel, um, a couple of times we've been to the Golan Heights winery. I, and I, I don't have a bottle of their wine right now. I really should have bought one for today, maybe. But in any event, um, yeah, so so vineyards have always been part of that of the land of Israel. And as far as I know, and this, certainly it is that way in um, your Old Testament and in your New Testament. It's something people are familiar with. It's, it's part of the agricultural metaphor. And... Um, it's, it's used as a metaphor fairly often. So, I think we'll be going to that winery this October. I think we are going to this winery in October. I bet we are. Yes. I'm sure it is. When we do the cruise trip, we don't have enough time. But when we have the land, land trip, trip, we make the time. We make the time. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we're all on a bus with a bus driver. Yeah, so other people are driving. Tasting. Yeah, <laughs> other people are driving. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, yeah, well, there we go. Okay, so let's just, man, I need my glasses here. So here, now, now here's how it is. So let's just talk about the first four verses. There are two voices. Think, think of um, two, two voices. The first voice, chapter one and two, um, is singing about God. The second voice in verses 3 and 4 is God. And you'll see the difference yourself, but, you know, you got to stop and take these things apart a little bit so that you can catch th some of this back and forth. Sometimes it's easier to see than others. This is pretty straightforward, I think. Um, I say that because I think I saw most of this without, without getting help from somewhere which is unusual, so it must be pretty simple. Verse, chapter five, verse one, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. Every Israelite who heard this knew that, that this vineyard owner is God, that he is the singer's beloved at the beginning. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And now the voice switches, and God speaks. He's the second singer, as it were. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, 
right? The wall of protect. It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And this is summed up in verse 7. The vineyard of Yahweh Almighty is the nation of Israel. There you go. It just spelled out for you if you don't get it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay. So that is the image which would stick. That's a powerful image about the vineyard, about the vine. And, it, and, it, and, and God is the planter and builder and creator and owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard is the people of Israel, right? Who God rescued from, from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and he, he gave them water and food and protection and told them how to live with God and one another. And they threw it away. They threw it away. And so instead of justice, there's bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, there's cries of distress. Instead of good grapes, the vineyard is producing bad grapes. I've had some bad wine. I can remember a couple of brands from college that I don't even know what they were, but... Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. <laughs> oh, man, you wonder, what could that... Looking back on it, what was that stuff? <laughs> so, that's the metaphor. So, it's a very powerful metaphor. So, I think what I want to do right now is look at it in two places in the New Testament. This vineyard business, Okay. <laughs> there you go, Steve. Ripple. There, Ripple. that's a name. Yes. It's a word I haven't heard in a while, yes. other than with respect to a bond. All right. Well, okay. So you know how you one way to keep animals out of places is by putting hedges in. Um, gosh, we just went to Bernie Suter's. Uh, memorial service today when the allied soldiers were trying to make their way through france it was very difficult because they used hedges as barriers and they were so thick and so impenetrable that it created a lot of a lot of problems that's the idea so hedge and wall are the same idea so the idea is it got planted the planted the the vineyards and all the choicest stuff, all the best spots, all the best soil, lots of protection. Put a watchtower up so that somebody could be there to keep an eye on the vineyard and keep any animals away that were going to do harm to the vineyard and or people, I guess, right? And it should have yielded good grapes, but it didn't. It yielded bad. <laughs> Patty, you and Mona are a little kind of kind of swimming in the same waters yes. there with that Boone's Farm stuff. Yeah, that oh, it was. Oh wow, it wow. wasn't pretty. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. So let's see. Let's do the first one here. Ah, uh, Scott. 
turn to John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 15, verse 1. While you're getting there, I'll provide a little context because um, this is, of. there are seven I am statements in John's gospel that begin with like, I am the bread of life, I am the true vine. There are seven of them. Those, this is the last in verse 15. It is the, um, it comes from the time in John's gospel when Jesus is sharing, how would we put it today? Sharing, sharing, sharing with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. And he's just talking, talking, talking to them, trying to help them understand what's happening, trying to prepare them for what lies ahead. And so here's, here's part of what that is. In chapter 15, verse 1, I am, that's the name of God, that's the secret to the seven I am statements, right? I am is the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. I am, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So when Jesus calls himself the true vine, and in Isaiah chapter 5, the vine vineyard is the nation of Israel, what does that, what does Jesus mean? Well, he means that he is the true Israel. He is the faithful Israelite who will keep the law of Moses. He will love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He will love his neighbor every day, in every way. He will keep God's law. And so he says, I am the true vine. It's like saying, I am the true Israel. I am the true people of God, if you want to think about it that way. And my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Because that's what gardeners do with tomatoes, grapes, roses, everything. He, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Then he says, you were already clean. This is his disciples because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. Abide in me. Remain in me. Close, intense. As I also remain in you. For no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. 
Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is for my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. So when you finish this section in John's Gospel and you're picturing this vine... Okay, picturing this vine, and it's all interwoven and so forth. It is a picture, a metaphor, a picture of the body of Christ. In that we all remain together, and we remain in Christ. And if we think that we can cut ourselves off from the vine, we will wither away. And... picture the vine again. It, it is why wise people will tell you that there is no healthy relationship with Jesus without a relationship with his church, with the body of Christ. I meet too many people who say, I love Jesus, but they, 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 don't, they don't participate in a church. They don't go to church. and None of that. And I'm thinking, well, you're like that branch in John 15. You think you can remain in Jesus, yet remove yourself from his body. How is that? Not. It's not how it is. So, um, but you can see how that, how that vineyard and vine metaphor is powerful. Let's look at another one. While I'm getting us ready to go there, any thoughts or questions on the John one? Yeah. Okay, this is a parable. This one's all about rebellion and trouble. This is Matthew 21, verse 33 to 46. I'll leave it up there so we can find it, then I'll take it, take the slide down. Okay, Matthew 21, verse 33. So, this is one of the famous parables of Jesus. This is a parable Jesus told during the week. I said I would take it down. I'm going to keep my word. During the week between Palm Sunday, riding into, Vic into Jerusalem, victorious Messiah, all that stuff, and Friday, the day of his crucifixion. So as the week goes along, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the confrontations are building, 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 and this is part of that. The confrontations are just getting hotter and hotter between Jesus and the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and the other leaders. You have a comment there by Marsha. She says there have been many people damaged by a particular church, and they have to heal. Yes, and here's what I would say, Marsha. Then what they need to do is to find a church in which they can find that healing. I don't. I, I mean, I I just don't know how well a person can heal apart from the body of Christ. There are a lot of people who have been damaged by churches 
I don't think I don't think St. Andrews is a place that does that. I've been there 20 years. I don't think there are people that are damaged by by St. Andrew. Um, but I would just caution people that if you have been damaged by a church, set yourself set yourself to do to to do the work of finding a church where you can find the healing you need because it can be hard to find by yourself hard to find by yourself but thank you marcia okay she yeah said she agrees. exactly yeah. see it's not easy to trust again sure i mean that see that's the whole issue marcia brings up such an amazing point here because the thing about trust and remember in your bible Every time it says believe in the New Testament, it's always underneath that Greek word pistis, which means faith slash trust. And here's the thing about trust. It takes a long time to build and can be shattered in a minute. And if there's anything that ought to make you righteously angered as a Christian, well, I guess there's many things, but one of the things that should make you righteously angered as a Christian is churches in which there is abuse and people are harmed or people are um, and and trust is broken you know so what does that mean for us who are making our way through life at St. Andrew we all have a charge a responsibility to protect that trust to protect that faith and a willingness to speak up if we see something endangering it. Um, but, yeah. Good point. Okay, so the parable. The parable of the tenants, it's usually called. Anything else over there, Patty, while I finish off this cup of coffee? Um, no, I... The only thing I've noticed is that our numbers are fluctuating all over the place. I've never really seen where we've lost, um, you know, where we've lost face, Facebook, but we're, we, we dropped. Like and it could just half. be, it could be their counter. I, I, I don't know. Oh, it's so true. Sometimes with the counter, it's just, yeah. it's crazy. But all I'm saying is that, wow, it just, I, I have no idea what's happening, but I hope everybody's still out there. Patty likes to look at the number, don't you, honey? Well, I like to have an idea if I'm, if there are problems with Facebook that right. way, you know. But, right. Um... Okay, so let's look at the parable of the tenants. Matthew 21, verse 33. Oh, gosh, Marsha Byers lost her power. Yeah, it's such a um, terribly, terrible weather day today. <laughs> we're joking but we're joking obviously yeah just you know you wonder sometimes how that happens okay chapter 21 verse 33 so jesus says this is jesus speaking this is jesus's parable and but we'll understand it listen to another parable there was a landowner who planted a vineyard well now that we've read isaiah 5 do we know who that is who's the landowner who planted a vineyard god god he put a wall around it he dug a wine press in it. He built a watchtower in it. Sound familiar? Sounds Isaiah 5, baby. Yep. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. 
When he sent the harvest, when the harvest time came, he approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Because that's kind of how it worked. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Okay, so who do you think the servants are in verses 35 and 36? Um, the prophets. Oh, good, Patty. Yes, the prophets. So God sends that, because that's what the prophets are. The prophets' job description isn't to sit around and gaze into crystal balls and predict the future. Their job is to go call the people back to God. And instead they're ignored or beaten, right? So, and then last of all, the, the landowner, the vineyard owner says, well, okay, I'll send my own son. Surely, surely they will respect my son. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out the vineyard and killed him. Jesus goes on. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, in other words, when the day of judgment arrives, <laughs> what will he do to those tenants? Oh, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected become, has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Who's the you? The you is, are the leaders of Israel. They, are, they should be good shepherds, but they're bad shepherds. They lead the people away from God rather than toward God. They are the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the rest who are Jesus is constantly talking about. The ones who walk through the square are so pleased with all of the adulation respect they get, you know, with their heads held high and their robes flowing behind them. They are the ones who are so glad that they're not like that horrible tax collector standing in the back over there. Story after story after story Jesus tells us about the leaders of Israel who should know better, who should lead the people to God and should understand who Jesus is. But they don't, they won't because Jesus has come to turn the world upside down and their world is going to be turned upside down more than anybody else. So, Jesus says, Therefore I will tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That stone is Jesus. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is the way. Verse 45. But when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. 
And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that Jesus was a prophet. So Jesus takes this hundreds and hundreds of year old metaphor about the vineyard that God owns and has created. And he reshapes it in such a way as to tell the story of Israel. A story of tragedy and disappointment where God's prophets are ignored and God's son will be crucified. Saying to those in charge, you can't be surprised when the world falls in on you then. Because you chose you chose your path, God says, rather than my path. So... And the Pharisees know it, you know, right? He, well, I guess that, yeah, I mean, I really... It, said he, it says here they knew he was talking about them. Oh, he knew they were talking, yeah. yes. They, he, he, they knew that he was the target. Usually the way I think about this is there's a crowd gathered around Jesus. He's telling this parable, but his eyes are looking right into the eyes of the Pharisees, scribes, whatever priests there might be, gathered around the fringes of the crowd more than likely. He's looking right at them, and they know who he is talking yes. to. That he's talking to them. And they should know better. In my classes, we've talked before about the long strand of the good shepherds of Israel, how the kings and the leaders were to be good shepherds, and good shepherds led the people toward God, but the kings and the rest had chosen the path of being bad shepherds. Consequently, just as with the vine, one of the great I am statements of Jesus is, I am the good shepherd. You see? See what all works together? It's, it's amazing. Reminded me of that old Carly Simon song. You're so vain, I bet you think this parable <laughs> is about you. Except they were right, huh? <laughs> so, okay, so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me find it on my iPad here. Okay, chapter 5. Okay. So it's really chapter 5, verse 7 that, that brings it together. So let's just hear, I'm going to read that one again, even if you're still finding your place there. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty, of Yahweh Almighty, is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines God delight in. Don't you love that word? He delighted in them. That's who God is. You know, I hear a lot of people in this world espousing all kind of things about God. and But these kind of words just jump off the page at me. God delighted in them. God made them. Why did God create, why did God make humanity? To love, to, del to delight in. People of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, 
but heard cries of distress. You're going to hear a lot about justice in the scroll of Isaiah. As we should. Okay, so any thoughts or questions? Patty had to step out for a second, but I will be looking at the comment section. Anything happening out there? Okay, so let's go on to verse 8. Now we're coming to some woes. <laughs> W-O-E. You, you kind of get these in different places in the Bible, this list of woes. You know, it's just kind of like warnings. Woe. <laughs> you know. Used to be in the NFL. Whoa, you're going to have to play Tom Brady this weekend. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Woe to you. Look at this next verse 8. This is so awesome. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. What's that? Well, woe to someone who just keeps adding on, buying this, buying that, accumulating all of this property and all of this land and all of this house. And where do they end up? Alone in the land. Because they've squeezed everybody else out. It's not the way to happiness. It's not the way to satisfaction and contentment. I'll just tell you. There's no point in living alone in a 12,000 square foot mansion. Just no point. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. Dot, dot, dot for anyone else, right? And you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty, Yahweh Sebaoth, has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. Why? Why? We're not going to get into why for a while here, but why? Because they have ignored the cries of the needy. Because they have not pursued justice. They have not pursued righteousness. It's been all about themselves. I'm reminded there's a passage, I couldn't find it right off the top of my head, but it's where God is taking... Um, it might be David God is taking to task, maybe Solomon, where God is saying, okay, okay, look, you've really got a fabulous palace there in Jerusalem. I mean, it is something to behold, baby. But look what I'm living in. Because they haven't built a proper temple for God. And it's priorities, right? priorities. So, verse 9, the Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of water, that's a measure, of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. That means you get a lot of seed, only a little grain. A whole big ten acres of vineyard, you get one bottle, something like that. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Just because wine is a blessing in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean 
drunkenness is embraced. It's not. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of Yahweh, no respect for the work of his hands. You know, almost when you read these things, you can almost read in them the idea, you know, it isn't really about the harps and lyres and the party. It's, it's the fact that all of it is lived apart from God. They have no regard for the deeds of Yahweh. No respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. What should they understand? That God is God. They are not. They are created to live in God's way. God taught them what God's way was at Mount Sinai. They should live that way. They should understand that. And that understanding should lead them to the doing. But it doesn't. Thus, those of high rank will die of hunger. And the common people will be parched with thirst. Right? Because the, the shepherds of the flock can lead the flock to ruin. That's what that's all about. Well, like one of the Beatitudes there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you could talk about the bad shepherds of Israel, but that, yeah, that's focused on the kings or the, the, the priests or whomever the leaders are. But they can lead the people to ruin. Right? It does seem... A lot of people are convinced there's going to be thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians and Russians dead before long. Why? Because Putin wants it. Because Putin wants it. And other people of power, they want it. So, you know, the common people don't get, they're not exempted. They're sucked into this spiral of, of death and hunger and misery. Verse 14, therefore death, I like the capital D, death, in the NIV. Therefore death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. Now, in verse 14, the cap, what's actually there in, in the Hebrew is Sheol, at capital S-H-E-O-L. And Sheol is the place of the dead. You've probably heard of Hades. Okay, for the Greeks and the Romans, Hades was the underworld beneath the ground that was the place of the dead. And Hades was the name of the god in charge of the place of the dead. And it was also the name of the place of the dead. So if you wanted, it was after you died, where did you go? You went to Hades because that's where the dead were. For a long time, it didn't have any connotation of punishment. It's just where the dead went. Sheol, sometimes called the pit in scripture, is the same idea. You know, for these ancient people, God is up there. We're here on this flat earth, maybe a disc even, this flat ground, and underneath it is where the dead, dead are. So the Greeks called it Hades, the Hebrew called it Sheol. And Sheol becomes 
a, a metaphor for death. But picture the pit. I like that. I, I like that too. Therefore, the pit expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, and into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, his commitment to the doing of right. That's what that is. The commitment to the doing of right. And the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. God will do what is right. So if you think to yourself, well, boy, God's really misbehaving here and there. No, God is doing what is right. You know, it's we live in a time when everybody wants to go back to, to Hitler, you know, to find examples of people who should be, you know, with the, the Nazi regimes and the concentrate, concentration camp guards and the rest of it, who, you know, death is waiting to swallow up because of their evil. The judgment passed on them. Well, that isn't restricted to 70 or 80 years ago, is it? God's justice, tempered by mercy, yes, is still justice. God wants right to be done. We perhaps don't want it enough. Perhaps we don't want it enough. So verse 16, but Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth, I just, that just has such a ring to it. But Yahweh Sabaoth in the Hebrew will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze in their own pasture and lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Peace will be brought. Right? Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Such good poetry this stuff is. Woe to those who draw along sin with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Just pulling it along, tugging it along, bringing that sin right along with them everywhere they go. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. Woe, in other words, woe to them because they don't understand, they, they refuse to see the injustice they are hauling around behind themselves. And that, and that God's justice will snap them up. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about this. How do we know what is good? Can I, I want to use the word moral here. How do we know what is moral? How do we know what is good? We look to God. God is the one who defines what good is. God is utter goodness. So, that is why Jews and Christians alike begin a discussion about goodness, not with human reasoning, but with scripture and reason from there. 
outward from Scripture. Because God is, God tells us what good is. God shows us what good is. Jesus has shown us what good is. There is no greater love than this, that, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. God teaches us these things. God is the definer of good. It is not our own wonderings. We don't all get to invent a morality that seems suitable to us. That's not God's way. That is the way of ruin. You can justify any damn thing you want. The Nazis justified everything. You, you think Vladimir Putin right now sees himself as a purveyor of, of evil because of what he is going to do, perhaps, in Ukraine? No. He rationalizes the whole thing. Even though tens of thousands of people are going to be killed. For what? No, we... You, you come to God, and you listen to God. You come to Scripture. You listen to Scripture. Is it always clear? Of course it isn't always clear. But that's what we do. And we work it out with other Christians. And we have good discussions and good arguments about, like, oh, pick one, just war. I was asked about that a few weeks ago. Just war. Is there such a thing as a just war for a Christian? Is there not just such a thing as a just war? But it begins... It begins with Scripture. It has to. There's no other way to begin it without it falling quickly back into our own personal preferences about all kinds of things. So yes, there, there are moral acts in this world and there are immoral acts in this world and they're not all just value judgments. There are moral acts and there are immoral acts. There is moral behavior and immoral behavior, and it is God who, who shows us the path of goodness, the path of what is moral. And evil here is what destroys the good. That's the definition of evil to have in your mind. It is any act that destroys what is good. So presumably... Peace and justice are good. They are good. Right? So an evil act is an act that diminishes peace and justice. Which go kind of pretty much hand in hand. Because sometimes you have to diminish the peace in order to secure justice. But... Um, so this is these are this is very brief, very pointed. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And I could come up with a list in our world today of the people and positions who don't who who do exactly this, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They've got it all mixed up. And why do they have it all mixed up? Because they won't listen to God. That's the point of the scroll. They've lost their way. They're stumbling around in the darkness, and pretty soon they're convinced they're in the light, when in reality they're still in the darkness, swimming in a pool of bitterness and evil, because they've forgotten what good even looks like. So...
great, great poetry here in chapter five. Go chapter five. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Oh, and clever in their own sight. Gosh, the world is filled with a lot of people who just think they're just so smart. They're so smart they don't even need God. They're so smart they can understand that there is no God. They're so smart they can put God on the witness stand. <sighs> Hogwash. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. We are called to embrace the wisdom that comes from God. And we are not clever enough. <laughs> we aren't as clever as we, as we humans think we are. This is why I so enjoy reading little bits of that I can comprehend from Richard Feynman, the great physicist of the last 50 years, who worked in quantum physics and stuff, who said, look, none of us really understand this. I don't understand this. The math works, but I don't understand this. If you meet somebody who tells you they understand quantum physics, they don't. That's a man who's humble. That, that is a man who understands that this universe is far bigger than our brains and imaginations can comprehend. So woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes. <laughs> at drinking wine, and champions at mixing drinks. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> nothing fine, nothing wrong with a glass of wine. But you don't need to be a hero at drinking it. No. Or champions at mixing drinks, you know, who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Wow. But deny justice to the innocent. That's a whole batch of powerful verses, isn't it, Patty? Yes. Right in a row there. My, 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 my. Verse 24. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. Why? Is God waiting to smite them? No. No, their roots are simply going to decay. Their flowers are going to blow away like dust. Why? Because they have rejected the law, the teachings. Perfectly good translation. Have rejected the teachings, the instruction of the Lord Almighty. And they have spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. They have gone their own way. Not God's way. And so, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> Verse 25, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people, and his hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. You ask an Israelite from this time, why why are Syria and Assyria and later Babylonia falling in on them? Because they are the instruments of God's justice. They're riding in speedily. 
and swiftly. Not one of them grows tired, not one of these enemies stumbles, not one of them slumbers or sleeps, not a belt is loosened at the waist or a sandal strap broken, their arrows are sharp, their bows are strung, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind, their roar is like that of the lion, they roar like young lions, they growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. Roar over what? Israel, the people of God. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. And this is how the Israelites understood what happened to them. The world fell in on them. First, the ten kingdoms of the north. Later, the kingdoms of the kingdom of Judah in the south. But it's the same, the same explanation that they had abandoned God's ways, insisted upon going their own way, and of course they were swallowed up by the mighty empires of the earth. So, wow. But my favorite section, I have to say my favorite part of chapter 5, which I will have to go back to some, is that middle section where we're talking about all the, you know, the, well, how did it go? After, after the vineyard part. Woe to you who add house to house. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to <laughs> make their drinks. <laughs> so... Early to bed, early, Ben Franklin, right, though? <laughs> yes. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yes. Yes, okay. I wonder how many kids today ever have heard that. How many kids today have heard of Ben Franklin? Oh, <laughs> that's a scarier question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I kept waiting for it to get uplifting. You said last week it was really down and dark, and it was going to get uplifting. Well, we sort of started there with the branch, the messianic okay. branch okay. of hope. All right. There's some hope here. <laughs> we know we know the story. We know there's hope. But Next boy, week wow. we're going to come. We're going to begin a, a narrative section, Isaiah's commissioning, where God says, "You know, I, I I need someone to send," and Isaiah says, "Here I am. Send me." That's chapter six. Okay. So I don't know. We'll take it as it comes. That's all you can do. You know what? And if you're not, if you're not happy, you know who you should talk to? Rich Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. Only, <laughs> Only kidding, Rich. You know that. No, I'm I'm enjoying it all, and I, you know, the thing is, as we always say, we we know the end of the story. So no matter how dark at times we see things or whatever, and, and so many times I talk about we live in a world in which people have forgotten about the truth of sin. They don't want to think there's something wrong with us, mm -hmm. right? And so these these chapters, these this poetry is all about what is wrong with us, mm -hmm. for which there needs to be a solution. And that solution doesn't even reside in us, does it? That's God is going to have to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the larger story. So I think kind of pounding in on us that yes, there is something wrong with us. There is, because certainly all these verses about trading good for evil and evil for good. We could certainly identify with all that in our in our world today in 2022. Which is, which is so weird that it, it's yeah. 2022. Yeah, it's being lived. This stuff's being lived out in 2022. Yeah. 
Okay, my love. I'm, I'll stop ranting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hold my water here. Okay. Hold it. You got it tight? Yeah. Okay. You're in charge. All right. I'm in charge. Uh-oh. Well, thank you guys all for being here with us today. I don't know what was wrong with the counter. It was all over, but it doesn't matter. I hope most of you got to hear everything Scott had to say and share with us today. And um, I hope some of you will be back tomorrow at 12 noon for the Gospel of John. Because we're, we're just a little past the I Am the True Vine. Yes, yes. We're, we're in that evening. Right. Before... The we trial just, and we arrest, for the arrest and trial and stuff. Just what we did, stuff. yeah, yep. last week. So let's close in prayer. Okay, my love. Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, God, for your scripture and Scott's teaching and helping us to understand a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, is just tricky. And we, we know that we need somebody, God, to help us get through some of these um, passages and, and because... In, in some ways, they're so just kind of almost ripped out of the headlines to us. And in other ways, they seem like something of a very distant past. And so we appreciate that, God, getting to see how this, how this is lived out in our lives today and in the world we live in today. I pray, God, that you would hold everyone in this group close, Lord. I pray for ourselves and I pray, God, for our families and our friends I pray, God, for um, our world right now. We have, we have had such a tough few years and um, with COVID and that finally we're seeing some light there. And, and now, Lord, we've been, we've been worried for, for weeks now about what was going to happen in, in Ukraine. And we just pray, God, we just pray if there's a way out of this, Lord, that that, that would come. We do. And we do pray, God, for all those that are, are in harm's way right now. Um, we know, God, that you are here to bring an end to this evil. And for that, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in the name of your Son, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye. Adios. Have See y'all later. Day.